should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us here on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm Michelle Miao. I am Michelle Miao, your host. And since today is Tuesday, it's a beautiful day. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I this morning I got up at five and I'm get, getting ready for my day, jotting down my notes. In one hand, I've got a book uh, in which we'll talk about in the first half of our program today mm-hmm. under this beautiful dome, which tells of an incredible love story. Um, on the other hand, I have a stack of papers um, well, let's just put it this way. It, it outlines disciplinary actions through a grievance process. Uh, just, you know, again, living in two different worlds, <laughs> the things you do, you know, to to make things happen in your life, I guess. Keeps you alive. Keeps me alive. Um, so I didn't get a chance to tune into your week to week program last Friday, but I wanted to get your thoughts, you know, in this past week or so, I should say two weeks, you know, What's been dominating the headlines have not been the political figures themselves, really. You know, what's been dominating are more of the issues, which I think have a lot to do with the shooting that occurred Mm -hmm. um, in Oregon. Uh, You know, what's been dominating the headlines also women's rights and issues uh, regarding Planned Parenthood. We haven't been hearing a whole lot about gay people, though. True. But, Maybe. Yeah. I mean, well, except for the Pope's visit and right. uh, the stuff that's come out of that, the whole... Kim Davis. Kim Davis, and then, it, you know, met with the Pope, had a wonderful time, supposedly. Then the Pope, the Vatican says, no, we didn't really have a wonderful time. There was no singing of Kumbaya. Um, and he had also met with a gay couple. Uh, you might have seen this, the news. Uh, Mo Rocca, who is an openly mm-hmm. gay man, read a, a, a something, a scripture or something uh, at one of... Uh, the the Pope's uh, events. It's we're, we're in the still, news. Don't we're, worry, we're still there. We're Michelle. still there. Okay, just checking. Um, but uh, you know, kind of where was I going with this? I mean, you know, John Boehner quit, and it seems like maybe Americans are waking up a little bit that some of those core values, the conservative values, some of the the control that they've had, you know, regarding things like gun control, women's rights. I mean, maybe maybe um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's foreshadowed for for 2016 on it's not a Republican Democrat thing, but it's a human life thing. What what specifically? Because I think it actually still is a Republican Democrat thing. I mean, John Boehner leaving wasn't John Boehner wasn't the one who was pushing the conservative agenda in Congress. Believe it or not, as conservative as he is, he was kind of the bulwark against mm-hmm. the Tea Party, and that's what finally got him to say, "Oh, to heck with this! I'm going to go back to." farming or whatever he does um so 
it's it's interesting to watch. This Thursday they will, I guess, be electing the new Speaker of the House. It's not going to be Nancy Pelosi. All right. <laughs> if you want more politics, tune in to the Michelle Meow Show Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. John Zipper hosts his uh, week-to-week political roundtable talk. We're going to get started with our program today. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is the author of Under This Beautiful Dome, a memoir that tells a love story between a journalist and a senator during the 90s when gay love was definitely not accepted or was not accepted as much as it is today in mainstream media and especially unaccepted and shamed if it involved people in the White House. She is the journalist in this story. So let's welcome Terry Mutchler to the program. Terry, welcome. Uh, Michelle, thank you. It's a great thrill to be on your show. Uh, we, we're, we are excited to have you. And, uh, I mean, your book uh, has in a, a great love story, but also, you know, a story that goes in our history books. It, it, it uh, also will go into anything pertaining American politics. Um Let's start with, you know, the fact that it was quite a different time when when you may have been discussing your relationship in the 90s and compared to today's time. I mean, just turn on the television and it seems like even political programs like Scandal, for example, who, uh, you know, write gay love stories into the script. Um, you know, back when, you know, you tell the love story between you and, and Senator Penny Severns, the, the political climate was, was very, very different, wasn't it? It was absolutely different. And if you did turn on a TV and see anything to do with uh, lesbians or gays, it was either, you know, them being arrested or jailed or killed, uh, as we saw in, in some of the um, terrible stories of our history. So it was a very much uh, different time than the open and more welcoming time, obviously, that exists now. Now, this uh, story, I guess it also takes place in, is it Decatur, Illinois? Small town, Illinois. That's I mean, right. We were, yep, in central Illinois, uh, small town, Illinois, as you put it. That's a good way to describe it. It was, uh, it was very much uh, an area that, um, like many of your uh, listeners maybe came from, uh, very rural, central uh, United States. I'll start with um, love at first sight. I'm such a I'm such a romantic uh, you know person here. I mean, I just I love the story so much, and you had me at tears. But you know, you were working as the first woman appointed um, AP or Associated Press State House Bureau Chief in Illinois, and you walk out of the Capitol Rotunda, and bam, there she was, Senator Penny Severns, Democrat, 51st District from Decatur. Was she really wearing a red suit? She was. And uh, what's interesting is I did not know who she was. I did not know that she was a senator. Um, the way that the Capitol and most capitals around the country are set up is that they, are, uh, they have a dome. Uh, and as I was walking up um, in the center of the Capitol under the dome, uh, there Penny was in a red suit. And most of the other suits, as I wrote in the book, were sort of a sea of dark gray. I think I referred to it as a look like a rack from Brooks Brothers. <laughs> and I, I looked up and I, I saw this incredibly, um, you know, just gorgeous, vibrant woman. And I, I was spellbound. I 
felt like a goof. I was standing there on the Capitol steps, kind of just staring at her. Um, and I, I didn't know who she was. I, I presumed, uh, which was a kind of a sore point to Penny for the rest of her, for the rest of her life, at least. I presumed she was a lobbyist. And, um, so she, which she hated, uh, that I thought that, um, but it was to be at least another week or two before I found out who she was. But yes, that is, that is exactly how it happened. She was standing in this red suit. She was talking with someone and had been kind of in the political realm, patting his back as, as you'll see a lot in DC or, um, uh, you know, other, other capitals. And so that's, I, I was mesmerized in that moment. In the book you mentioned, it was just, you know, in three minutes you, you'd fallen in love um, with someone you, again, like you just said, you hadn't met, you hadn't met her, uh, uh, didn't know who, if she was gay or straight or anything. Tell us how then the relationship actually started. How did, once you found out who, was it after you found out more about her and then met her more or what happened? I was, I was mesmerized for days. And as I had written in the book, I had called a friend of mine who was a, a reporting pal who was, back in New York, and I said I just fell in love, and of course she wanted all the details, and I had none to offer other than <laughs> I see this woman in a red suit, and, and she was, my friend Ann Connors was very, you know, sweet about it. It was in essence saying, yeah, call me back when you have some more facts. Um, <laughs> but um, what happened was I, I kind of looked everywhere I went in the Capitol for the next series of days. I, I looked to see if I could see this woman again, and um, and I had been, as the AP Bureau Chief, I was editing a story of one of the, the folks that worked for me, and um, I was double-checking, because I was new to the state of Illinois, I was double-checking the facts, and I, I pulled out a what's called a blue book, it's just a directory of lawmakers to try to double-check the party affiliation of a lawmaker, and when I had done that, um, I, had, I saw this picture staring back at me of the woman that I had seen in the rotunda, and I discovered that it was, um, in fact, Senator Penny Severin. Um, I, using kind of a reporting trick, I, I once I figured out who she was, I, I decided that I was going to interview her, uh, and so just to get to talk to her. And um, I had taken my reporter's notebook. I had actually met her uh, at at a newsstand in the Capitol, and we spoke just for a few minutes. Uh, later, when I was working on a story related to open government, I sought uh, Senator Severance out to get a few quotes. And um, I, you know, it was just a very kind of like sort of a cat and mouse sort of thing. I had, I had no idea if she was gay, if she was straight. If, I, I knew nothing about her. Um, there was one evening that I, and where the relationship sort of kicked off, if you will, is uh, one evening I had, um, I was new to Illinois. I didn't have much to do. Uh, and so I was trying to get some work done at my Capitol office and I saw that her light was on and it was about 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And I thought there is no way that that a lawmaker is, is working this late at night. <laughs> and I took my notebook, went up to do another interview. And as it turns out, she wasn't back there. And, uh, and, uh, we decided to have a drink An, a, a staff member had come in and kind of sort of blew that one-on-one -on -one situation. But the three of us went and had, uh, well, I had, we had drinks, but this other woman had dinner and, um, and we just started a conversation. And then I sort of, 
I mean, I admit it. I kind of chased her a little bit there. <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I looked for her everywhere I went. Um, we decided to have dinner. There's a funny story in the book about how um, I had I had approached her, and I, I don't know exactly how I got the courage to do this, but I asked her if she wanted to have dinner, and she said to me, "You'll have to check with my scheduler." <laughs> and I, I immediately, I, you know, I, I'm sure I can't say on radio what I really thought, but I was like, you know, I what think I'm you can say it here on the program. I mean, oh, you know, it's clear I, enough. You know, I was like, I was, I was kind of like, "Fuck you," you know, <laughs> you know, schedule, and. And as it turned out, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a person in her position with the schedule that she had. And so um, I was very put off. And uh, a few days later, uh, I, had, I was covering the Senate, which, by the way, if you have any aspiring journalists out there, you should not be involved with your sources. But um, nonetheless, I, I was out on the Senate floor. She approached me and asked me if I liked Thai food. And we ended up going out for dinner. Of course, it was in a group. And then from that, we ended up having uh, dinner alone. And then we came back to my porch for drinks. And so over the period of about three weeks, um, I went from seeing this beautiful woman in red, not knowing who she was, to sharing a first kiss on my porch in, uh, in, in Illinois. And, and Thai food. Was, <laughs> and Thai food. And Thai food. Uh, and, you know, and I mean, the, the thing about, um, you know, we fell very fast and there's no, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people had that experience, but, um, but it was very, it seemed in my mind at the time, very dangerous from an ethical standpoint because she was a Senator. I was the first AP bureau chief, but, um, but, you know, there was pretty much no looking back once we sort of got our footing that we were in this. And we're going to get we're going to get into the heart of, you know, the story and your book here. Um, We're running up on a break. Uh, Just want to remind folks we're speaking with Terry Mutchler, who's the author of Under This Beautiful Dome. So we're discussing her love story with Senator Penny Severns of uh, Decatur, Illinois. Uh, John, you had a question right before we go on break. Well, actually, I I suspect you don't have enough time to get into it now. But uh, when we come back, I want to ask. So you, you learned who she was. When we come back, tell us what type of a person she was. I mean, when you got to know her, and and the reason I'm saying let's do this after the break is I suspect that's not something you can answer in 30 seconds. Or maybe it is. I don't know. How many minutes do we have until her break? The headline of it would be um, she was was very, very, very beautiful. She was very kind. Um, And her mantra before we go to break was she always put her constituents first, her family second, and herself last. And she was a very giving person. And you, you know, I mean, just by reading her Wikipedia, it's like she never gave up. Um, she just kept always, you know, going back in, in the ring, if you will, uh, putting her name out there. Not, not just running for senator, but other positions, which we'll get into. So I guess we'll just take the break here. So don't go away. We're going to continue our conversation. I know you're dying to hear the rest of the story under this beautiful dome with Terry Mutchler. So the Michelle Miao Show continues right after this.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this beautiful Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Our guest today and on the phone with us is Terry Mutchler, who is an attorney, by the way, and an award-winning journalist who worked for the Associated Press. And she currently now is Pennsylvania's first executive director of the Office of Open Records, making sure there's government transparency. And today, though, she's talking about her book under this beautiful dome and being transparent about a relationship she didn't talk too much about. So, Terry, you know, I it, it, it's interesting to me as I'm, I'm reading the book. I didn't uh, finish it, but what I what I uh, what sparked for me was how honest and transparent you were about the love, and that includes the love making. I mean, it you know, it's kind of weird to think about politicians making love. I mean, who thinks about even Hillary Clinton making love? Like that's just really super weird. And I'm going back to the the scandal days where you know, it, or the whole television show scandal and and, and politicians being involved with relationships seemed to be taboo or or scandalous. But also the love making was significant for me because while making love, both of you found lumps. Um, let's let's go there. We know that Pe- Penny had passed away from cancer, uh, which is you know what this book is about the relationship and. Um, what ever what 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 took her life from her uh what let's talk about you know the first time we found a lump for you and then move on to penny yeah i mean the the reason that i wrote about this in the book was was twofold um when uh when i discovered a lump that thankfully was benign um even though penny and i were in very deep secretive relationship and we went to bizarre extremes to hide this relationship. I would park two miles away from our house. You know, we would, uh, you know, we just did some very unusual things to keep the secret. But when I discovered the lump, Penny, who had had her family has a, had a history of breast cancer. One sibling died and another is, uh, happily well. And, but it, it was in remission at that point. 
Penny insisted on, um, you know, coming to the doctor with me, which was very difficult to explain. Here, here we are in a secret relationship, and yet, who is this not only person, but this kind of famous person in, in central Illinois who's coming to the doctor with me and why? And I wrote about that in the book. The, the second piece, of course, was that when we discovered uh, Penny was always living in fear of this disease that was chasing, you know, that claimed one of her siblings and was now chasing her. We didn't know that at the time, but uh, we had discovered that lump one Sunday morning, um, you know, when we were uh, uh, making love, and um, it be, and it set the tone for um, some of the major arguments we would have about, you know, uh, what she needed to do to, you know, to, to get to the doctor quickly, and which did not happen, as I wrote in the book. And it, it set the frame for how toxic secrecy can be. And for any of your listeners, you know, that are in relationships or, you know, love just anyone, um, you know, think about trying to maneuver a major medical crisis um, when you can't even identify as the person's partner, or uh, it would even be odd if you were there as a friend. And so, you know, the book in many ways is a paradox of, you know, we were deeply in love. We, you know, there was, it was kind of no holds barred to the love, but also equally as deep was this extraordinary secrecy and toxicity that we put ourselves through because of kind of the nature of the time at, at that time and where gay marriage was on the social stratosphere. But I think even more honestly, I think we were homophobic. Mm. And I think that that also, you know, we, I realized in writing the book that while we very easily latched on to this idea that the reason we were secret was because of the ethical conundrum of her being a senator. And, and I want to inject here, not just a senator. She was the first female bureau, um, sorry, the first uh, female Senate budget negotiator. She was the first, um, she made American history being the first um, all-female team on a gubernatorial ticket in American history. The Washington Post had written about that at the time. So she was a very prominent um, but we latched onto this idea that if we were out, that it would be because of the ethical things, I would be fired, which would have been true, and she would have lost her job. But when I wrote the book, what I realized is, and kind of realized it long before, is it was really homophobia that kept us uh, in the closet. I know that there are a lot of people who were, um, you know, out long before, uh, you know, Penny and I in the 90s had this issue. I had a woman come up to me uh, who was 85 years old when I spoke at the Free Library in Philadelphia, and she and her partner of like 60 years were getting married this year, and she, at the end, she wanted a picture, she wanted me to sign her book, and then at the end, she said, I have a question for you. She said, you know, I don't really understand what the big problem was coming out in the 90s. I came out in the 60s. I, I sort of felt like I was being schooled on my, you know, uh, but there was, a, there was a context to it. And for Penny, it was, a, it was a world of politics. For me, you know, I, in addition to um, the homophobia that came with my own experience, you know, I grew, up, I grew up in a deeply religious family, and I think that that also played a part in um, the secrecy. So I wrote about, 
you know, I, I, the reason I wrote as plainly and as honestly as I could, writing the easy stuff, writing about being in love was, was fun. That was, you know, it's easy to go back in your mind's eye and remember how you met someone that you're in love with. The difficult part was being honest enough to really be honest enough and sort of report on myself. Because I knew that for a book like this, it, it, you know, readers would be able to, they can smell when you're not authentic. Right. And, um, and here, as difficult as it was to write some of the things that I wrote about myself um, and about my relationship with Penny uh, and my home life and all those things, um, you know, it, if you're going to have a reckoning, you're going to have to have a real reckoning. And that meant speaking the truth completely. Now, were either of you out to anyone? I mean, you were talking to you, your friend in New York, you said, and, and about this beautiful woman you met. So obviously some of your friends knew, at least. What, how wide well, actually, was they it? didn't. Oh, really? I circled back with that friend when she asked me what happened once I was in the relationship with Penny, and I, I lied to my friend, and I said that nothing came of it. Okay. Um, we, we, it took about three years into the relationship um, I disclosed it to my sister-in-law, uh, and I do not, I, I am not aware of anyone that Penny disclosed it to. Um, but interestingly enough, and we get to this in the book, um, her identical twin, who I've obviously written about in the book as well, um, uh, you know, was kind of in on the secret, but we all bought into the fact that it was under an ethical conundrum. Uh, that that kept it secret, but it was also kind of, as I write in the book, an open secret. When well, we would go to each other's family's house, we would sleep in the same bed. I mean, you know, it was just something though that wasn't discussed. Well, that's also good. It just you know means you have less laundry to do in the morning. Um, <laughs> you you have that quote in there, and I, I think it was from her sister, and I, I thought it was I don't know it, it affected me quite a bit. Where I think she was saying. Uh, you and she, and Penny were not married. You were, what was it? You were friends or whatever. And, and she took you under right. her wing. I mean, right. that, that could not have been nice to hear. Um, at the time that that quote occurred, you know, when, when I had that conversation, you know, you fast forward through a lot in yeah. the book at that point. Uh, Penny died um, in February of 98. Um, I went through that grieving process uh, initially, um, extremely alone and isolated. And within about two weeks after Penny's death, um, I was locked out of our home. And, um, and these were things that I could not, um, assimilate. I couldn't make sense of. And also, uh, and this is a very difficult thing to, to say out loud, let alone say having written it. Um, you know, I couldn't speak for myself. I was, I was completely collapsed, both in grief, in secrecy, in loyalty, in fear. And when that occurred, I, I, I acquiesced and, uh, and I walked away when I was locked out. I mean, not in that moment. I, I had a, you know, as I detail in the book, when I came face to face with understanding that someone that I was very close to, Penny's identical twin, that she was the one that had locked me out. It, 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 I can't explain to you, I still can't even explain it to myself, the internal implosion that occurred. Um, 
in, you know, within myself. It took me several years uh, and, and not in the best forms of therapy. I mean, I went deep into alcoholism. I went deep into just a lot of, um, you know, terrible, horrific, um, you know, behavior, uh, you know, coping mechanisms. What, what happens to a lot of us in the queer community, you know, who had suffered through that time of oppression and uh, discrimination, by the way. Uh, but, yeah, but please, I yeah. That, yeah, I think that, um, you know, I certainly did not have the skill set to handle what I was up against. I was a widow at 32. I'd been in a secret relationship. Um, you know, I had a, Penny and I together were in extreme denial about her death. I mean, about her impending death. Right. Um, and so, you know, even if we could have, uh, and we did, we tried, but, you know, to try to get things in order, but we, we kind of ran out of time, obviously. But the piece that you're mentioning there, <clears throat> when I finally kind of got my shit together uh, several years later and, and started to have some compassion for what happened here, I made an effort to go finally um, confront Penny's twin. It was very difficult because she was also an identical twin. Mm -hmm. And so when you, you know, seeing her was this, it was kind of this mind uh, bend, you know. But in any event, when I, when I tried to approach her, I, I, I met with her. I wanted her to see that the Penny and I had about a thousand love letters between us and cards. And I thought that if I could start from a position of love, that it would work, that I would be able to have her to understand what happened and to, you know, that we would grieve together because, you know, I I can't imagine what it must be like to lose an identical twin. I I certainly now, unfortunately, know what it's like to lose a spouse. But it was in that context that she said to me, "Um, you were not married, Terry, uh, and uh, Penny took you under her wing. That's all. She said, don't say you were married. And it was a very, um, you know, that's when my anger started to kick in, I yeah. think. Uh, and if I could have tapped into that anger years earlier, I think it could have saved myself from what I experienced. But Terry, Terry it, I, it didn't happen. I, we, I'm sure we could go this entire hour, which I would love <laughs> to in, in terms of the book, because again, I, I am thankful for you um, in, you know, publishing this book and putting it out there and the stories that you do tell. Um, Unfortunately, we're running up against time, and I, I kind of wanted to ask this question. I mean, sure. in the book, you do talk about the fact that, uh, you know, both you and Penny had a relationship with the Clintons. Here we are in 2015. Hillary is, you know, mm-hmm. running for president. She could become the first uh, female president, which I'm sure, you know, resonates with you and, and Penny and her position. And, and then when talking about LGBTQ rights, here we are with marriage equality. But going back to what you said, you know, if you came out, you could be fired. We still could be fired from our jobs today. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's your reflection on the time that has passed since Penny passed away in 98? and if um, if she were still with us today, what do you think she would have thought of, you know, or of the um, the movement here? And do you think that she would probably try to run for president herself if she was here with us today? You know, it's um, I, I love and hate when I get questions like this. They're, they're great questions. And the, the, the true reality is I we will never really know the answer. Mm-hmm. However, um, as as. Uh, you know, having been Penny's press secretary and obviously um, having been her spouse for the 
years that we were together. I think I have kind of an insight on this. I think the first thing that I think she, like so many of us, would be astounded at the warp speed of the last 20 years, where uh, the you know where today we are sitting with a Supreme Court decision that that gives us marriage equality, and I think that there would be a level of shock uh, that wow this, that this went from you know the secrecy that that we encountered uh, to uh, to where we are today. I think that um, that on a political level, I, I'm I have no question in my mind that she would be a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, there she had the relationship with with uh, Senator Clinton. I I was kind of in the uh, the fray of that, uh, and so I don't want to overstate that in any way. But Penny did have a, a a friendship with her. One of the one of the greatest moments for me watching that was when Penny was on her way to get a bone marrow transplant in Loyola uh, in Chicago in the car on the way up. uh, uh, Then first lady Hillary Clinton called her to wish her well and and stayed in touch with her during that arduous, arduous process. Um, So I think Penny would, I think she would have been the first governor of Illinois. I think beyond that, I, I don't, I don't recall her ever speaking of aspirations of the White House, as, you know, as an occupant of it. Um, but you know, there's a a lot happens in politics. I definitely believe that she would have gone on to capture the first um, gubernatorial, been in the first gubernatorial governor in in Illinois that was a woman. And I think beyond that, she probably would have gone on to serve, uh, you know, under a president in the White House. I don't know that she would have. Uh, gone to, you know, to do that herself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think we marvel at these times, but it's also critical to remember that for anyone that's out there, yes, we have marriage equality. You can get married at 10 in the morning and by four in the afternoon, you can be kicked out of your house and lose your job. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the state of Kentucky, you might not even get the marriage <laughs> right. license. Oh, right. But, um, so look, I mean, I think it's, now's not the time to be complacent. I mm-hmm. think that we have to protect the rights that we've garnered. It doesn't mean, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm all, I'm hateful right, but I'm also I am also super protective of them, and I don't think that we should let one inch go by, one day go by where that gets eroded. I think that that's a call to your younger viewers to make sure that they understand what was won here. And because they, in the future, are going to be the protectors of it. Terry, thank you so much for joining us here on this program for, and for sharing your story. Everyone should pick up a copy of Under This Beautiful Dome, a senator, a journalist, and the politics of gay love in America, and, in which, by the way, Rachel Maddow has hailed a, a beautiful book and a remarkable story. Terry, thanks again for being with us. It was my great pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Our next guest will discuss Stonewall, that controversial movie that you may or may not have seen. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. 
It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. With us today is John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Our next guest is a queer Latino journalist and also an activist based in New York City. He's won multiple awards for his work and has written for Slate, The Advocate, Refinery29, and Modern Loss. And today we are going to discuss his most recent article featured uh, in The Advocate. And we're going to talk about Stonewall, the movie that we briefly discussed. We had Otoje uh, Abbott on who played Marsha P. Johnson. And uh, we've been discussing a little bit about the controversy that surrounds the film. So let's welcome Matthew Rodriguez to the program. Matthew, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, just really quick, just a quick correction. I'm, uh, I'm also a staff writer for MikeMIC.com. And that's actually where the piece about Stonewall lives. It's not on The Advocate. I think The Advocate referenced it, but it's on Mike, M-I-C.com. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yes, that happens a lot with The Advocate. Uh, lots of stories <laughs> filter through this big, enormous, <laughs> you know, LGBT media world. But thank you. Thank you for that correction. So let's um, let's jump right into it. So have you seen Stonewall, the movie? I actually have not. I, I wasn't part of any formal boycott um, or anything like that, but I chose not to consume that piece of media, which does not mean that I won't consume it in the future. I just felt like I had to be in a certain headspace to see it. And um, I did. I just was not in that headspace around when it came out. <laughs> so you've written about it in a nutshell. Explain to our listeners, what's your reaction to, I guess, the Stonewall, the central Stonewall controversy? So um, my reaction is that, first of all, Hollywood is a business. And when Hollywood has to create a story and it, you know, uses the very precious stories of people of color and queer people of color, they have to make a decision as to how those stories will be consumable and packageable because they are looking to make money. People think films are art and they are, but they're about making someone in a boardroom lots of money. And so, um, 
when, you know, you have to make a movie, you know, Roland Emmerich, and he was very explicit about this, said, you know, I had to create a character first as a director that he could understand, uh, that he could see the, it through, and the main character was that person, but also I think that it was more consumable and more marketable with a uh, mainstream-looking kind of white gay character, uh, just like a lot of the media we consume is more marketable and consumable with a mainstream white gay character, whether that's modern family or looking or anything like that. That's my take on it, is that like this was a business decision and business decisions often, whether we're talking about films or business decisions of, you know, businesses in New York city are not always very conducive to queer life and queer survival and queer stories. Let's also, you know, throw in there. I mean, uh, one of the central statements or, or themes of this controversial film has been the idea that it, you know, it partakes in the erasure of queer trans people um, and also, you know, queer people of color. You just mentioned looking in which, you know, I had a debate with somebody who felt like looking failed because it was too white or too Caucasian, which is, you know, kind of the reverse of what you just stated. Um, if people are consuming media just by, you know, the fact that it, they want it to look marketable. Right. But let's discuss the importance of, you know, in, in terms of our community, at least, and where we're where we are with our movement, why you you can't erase queer trans people from the movement, at least not today, not now. Well, you know what? I think a lot of what our generation or, or what is in the zeitgeist right now is about authenticity. People can tell when people can smell inauthenticity from a mile away. It's the reason why certain people fail. It's the re- I mean, in my opinion, it's the reason someone like Iggy Azalea failed. She came off as very inauthentic, like she was pandering. And so I think that people, when you erase queer people of color from queer history, it comes off as inauthentic because most people who understand the story of Stonewall understand that it is a story about people who literally, um, queer people of color who literally lived on the streets. I mean, there was a reason they were the ones rioting and that the riots happened in the streets and they were part of it is because they couldn't go home at the end of the day and be like, I'm not going to be part of the riot. Their home was the streets. So they had to be a part of it by where they lived. So when you make a film out of it and there is that sense of erasure, um, it comes off as inauthentic. I think um, I, I once again did not watch Looking. I have seen one or two episodes, especially someone who's written about HIV. I watched an, a few episodes when they introduced Truvada as a storyline and stuff like that, just so I can see what was going on. But I also chose not to consume that media. But um, I think, you know, it, it is a very, it, it was an apples and oranges comment kind of when I brought in Looking, but it was more just about like which queer stories get told and, and them using white stories. But yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of you know, Stonewall is the story of queer people of color and to leave it out is inauthentic and people could tell that. And that's why there was that. Well, one of the other articles you've written has been, it was a, a list of other films that you, you direct people to saying, look, you want some good LGBT history, you know, the celluloid closet and some of these others. Tell us about some of those. What, what and why are they uh, good ones to uh, take in? Yeah. I would love to talk about them. So I'm a big fan of, um, I'm not a huge fan, and I'm sure maybe people who are listening to this might go online and look at my articles and <laughs> try to prove me wrong, but I'm not always a big fan of call-out culture, where it's kind of like 
you did something wrong and I'm going to tell you how I did it wrong. I try to, I, I'm trying and I'm evolving on the idea of calling culture where it's like, if you have knowledge about something, why don't you call someone into that knowledge? And so I, I did 10 queer films that will teach you more LGBT history than Stonewall because I wanted to let people know that there are options when it comes to how to depict queer history on film. And so some of them are very docu are just documentaries and not, I don't say just documentaries of flight to documentaries, which are very great pieces of art, but you know, some people might be thinking, well, this is a fictionalized film. So don't equate Stonewall with, um, you know, a movie like the celluloid closet, which shows, um, I think the celluloid closet is a great beginner film because it's a film about films and about how queer people have been either erased or portrayed in films for a long time. And I think a lot of people are familiar with Milk, and I made a very deliberate decision to put in the times of Harvey Milk, even though the movie Milk is a very, um, very deft and very accurate portrayal. Um, personally, I just have problems with um, advocating for people to watch Sean Penn because he is someone who has a, a known history of abuse, of you know, violence against women. So I chose at a personal choice not to do that. And the other documentary I put in, Others is Paris is Burning, which I think is a really great example of how a lot of the things that we, a lot of the slang that we use, a lot of the culture that we have right now came from queer people of color, queer and trans people of color. And I think that um, naming something and decentering it is important for culture. So it's like, yes, we say yes, and yes, we, you know, talk about shade and reading. And now even, you know, girls that I know just in some of my classes are friends of mine a shade or reading, but like, this is something that, you know, was being said 25, 30 years ago or older, um, or, you know, by people who are not, who are not benefiting from it. So that's part of why I made the list. And then the list also, um, I really wanted to reflect the diversity of experience. Like I think Stonewall is a great story to tell, mm -hmm. but I don't think every story that we tell has to be an origin story or a big, a big, um, important story and that there is importance in tiny stories. And that's why I put in something like My Beautiful Laundrette, which is a really tiny film that not a lot of people know, but that's it's right. such a beautiful film. I agree. And it has to do with like racism. And, and that's what I love is that actually the gay stuff in the movie kind of takes a backseat to the um, ideas of, or to the um, examination of racism in London. And it's such a tiny, beautiful film. And that's why I put it there. Um, i trying to think what else I put there that, you know, something like Tongues Untied, which is, people rarely discuss, but is really um, a movie about a big subject about black gay men, but it's also like Marlon Riggs' really tiny story of himself, and it's so powerful. And then there's also um, films that are fictional, but deal with um, the reality of being LGBT. So I put, but I'm a cheerleader, and obviously that's like a farcical, really bigger than life film that is not, that is so stylized, and it's not true to life there's no verisimilitude like with the movie but it does deal with the fact that like our behavior throughout history has been deemed abnormal and there are people who want to normalize it and then same thing like with short bus like i have i've always loved short bus because i love jan cameron mitchell but i also love that like it was a fictionalized movie about a real thing that there are sex salons and sex clubs and that's a part, also a part of queer life yeah it's definitely a list worth checking out because you get a really diverse list of things. And it's on Mike.com, by the way. I made the miss. It's not the advocate. They are not the end-all, be-all <laughs> of all queer writers. Hey, Matthew, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to continue uh, our discussion. So stick around with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this.
listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. And our guest on the phone is Matthew Rodriguez, who's a staff writer at Mike.com. And we're discussing all things... Well, I guess, you know, yes, we, f- we first started our discussion regarding Stonewall. So I'm going to toss that back, Matthew. Uh, we just finished your list of 10 great films that people can watch that include um, queer people and queer people of color. Uh, but, you know, going forward, when we talk about people like Roland Emmerich, I mean, who's also gay, by the way, but also has tons of money. We're, we're heading into 2016, and one of the largest uh, or biggest uh, focused topics that we're talking about is inequality when it comes to, um, you know, income when it comes to jobs and it comes to healthcare and access to things like, uh, you know, housing, which affects LGBTQ people of color. So I guess my very long way of asking you this is, I mean, we're eventually going to need more people to come to the mix of the party here to produce and curate art and write like you do and speak up. Um, how do we, how do we, how are we going to, you know, not defeat, but get more people like us focused on instead of someone like Roland Emmerich who has the money and power to create films however way he wants to. I mean, how, how do we do this going forward? Um, I think it's all about networking and like nurturing also. I think that sometimes, you know, I think we, as people of color and queer people of color, we've also, we've often felt like, or, you know, it's a common experience. Some of us feel like maybe the only person in the room. And sometimes we feel like we need to explain things for other people. And it's like, our life experiences become an example to other people. And there are times when I'm the only queer Latino in the room. It's not all the time, but it's sometimes. And so I think we can fight against that by nurturing other people's talent. Like, I think that, you know, if, if I know someone who's a writer or a writer, I help them, I write them. I, I mean, I, I, I write with them or I edit them or I tell them what they, what I, what they can. I give them tools um, with which to, you know, move forward in their vocation because it's important for people of color and queer people to nurture each other to make sure that we have the best tools to, um, to make an, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we have well, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, like all your articles right now on Mike.com and it's just so diverse. So it, it is, it's an absolute reflection of you as a diverse person as queer and in you know, many different intersections of your life. But, you know, someone like an advocate, I mentioned this and I made that mistake, right? That I just kind of went there and thinking that, um, you know, everything exists on the advocate, but editors of the advocate leadership of the advocate and where the money comes from are main, you know, come from people who are probably 
white who have money and who have privilege maybe. Uh, but when they include stories that of, of people of color, I mean, I just think that it doesn't stop there just because you have an article about a black lesbian doesn't necessarily make you all of a sudden diverse. So I just think that people of color like you and I need to continue these uh, very tough discussions and the dialogue, um, you know, that we're having openly here on the program. So I was just trying to get your thoughts on, I mean, is that kind of what you do when you write your stories is not just making sure there's representation, but also pushing the envelope a little bit in, in uh, the mainstream media doesn't, you know, don't pander to us, you know, make sure that you're absolutely inclusive. Um, I think it just starts with, being, with, it almost starts with humility. Like I consider my job as a journalist almost like a service. Like I don't think of myself as like, I have the answers and here's what you need to think. And I think there are some journalists who operate like that. I'm actually just like a naturally curious person and I, things interest me and I want to move forward, you know, and I want to find out more about things because the list that I made, even if we're talking about something as not silly, but like as, you know, maybe seeming inconsequential as a list of queer films, I didn't write that because I said like, I know more queer films than you and here's like what you should know. I think it was like more written out of, I wanted to know what are queer films that give you better histories than Stonewall. And I, that list went through several different incarnations and the films on the list were not final until the, the list was published. I mean, and there are ones that I left off the list and for different reasons and everything, you know, so nothing I write really is to be authoritative, but it's to start a conversation and it's to also to reinforce the fact that we don't know everything actually. Like that's how I, I approach writing is that even as a queer Latino um, you know, I may know my experience, but that doesn't mean I know all experiences and there are a lot of people with marginalized identities and those without marginalized identities who burden those with marginalized identities saying like, if you are marginalized in some way, then you must know of all marginalization. And that's obviously not true. I mean, I, one of my, I just wrote an article about um, a gay priest that was fired um, the day that he came out, but he also revealed that he had a partner. And so, you know, I had, I had originally emphasized the priest is gay and he was, you know, he was actually a part of the Vatican, so he worked for the Vatican. And, but like I had, we had feedback saying that, um, it was actually the celibacy, the celibacy part. So I, and that was something that I needed to be educated on. And I, you know, updated my article and there's other, you know, things like that too, where it's like I said, I have a natural curiosity and it's actually not about knowing and, sh and that it's about being curious about something, finding it out and then sharing that knowledge with people. I think that makes a lot of sense because you also have the issue where then other folks will be looking at you and saying, oh, a, a queer Latino writer represents all, all other queer Latinos. And it's like, right. well, no, that that completely ignores the, the vast diversity of, of interests and experience and history and levels of everything within every single group. So I think the more folks we get out there with their voices across the board, the better. Because, the better you know. is right. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Oh, gosh, it was a great time. It was it was awesome. Uh, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, we love your work. And uh, please, we need more. We need more Matthews. <laughs> we need more Matthews <laughs> writing out there. So follow Matthew on his Twitter at Matthew Rodriguez. And by the way, Matthew is spelled with one T. Um, or you can check out his work at Mike.com. Thanks again, Matthew. Thank you. thank you. Have a great day. And that wraps the show, John. Another great show. Congratulations. 
Um, we, you know, don't, by the way, I don't think John uh, nor I feel, you know, a certain way about Stonewall, though I find validity to some of the things that people are saying regarding this film. Uh, the reviews have come out, and I, I think at the end of the day, you know, it just sounds like a bad movie. I don't, I have no idea. I haven't seen it. Not sure I, I would. Maybe I'll catch it on TV someday. Um, my thought on it was kind of, I don't know, were they still showing Johnny Tremaine when yeah. they were in school? Okay. I don't know that you would look at that and say you're getting really good American history. And yet that's actually used as a teaching tool, which of course has this, you know, <laughs> teenage white kid who's kind of leading through, you know, helping lead the revolution. Here's, here's the problem is um, I think that Roland Emmerich made a film about Stonewall, uh, the way that he makes films at the wrong time. Uh, we're just not ready, you know, for someone to make a film about the, you know, beginning of the gay revolution, the gay movement, the gay liberation movement that is supposed to be Hollywoodish. I, I mean, it. I, I think he's tripped across some wires because when you read interviews with him talking about this controversy, it's interesting. He gets what the controversy is about, mm-hmm. but he's, of course, you know. But yeah, his defense is he's a filmmaker, but well, I included these people. And, well, and, and Matthew did a, a made a really good point when he was talking about how you even had some of these shows and, and movies that have tried to make that commercial decision. Okay, nice shiny white people will be, will be the stars. We'll have supporting mm-hmm. characters of, of other ethnicities. I think this is is largely a, a racial thing, not not necessarily a, a, some of the other differences that you might put in there. It's it's a hard conversation to have because here's the thing. I mean, who would who would tell the story best? Who would have a much uh, you know more accurate approach if we were to create another film um, that would please you know the LGBTQ community and also educate you know the entire world about Stonewall? I can't answer that question. I can't either. But the good news is simply just as time goes by, other people will make films. You Plenty know, of people. Just so. because something's up on the uh, the movie screen doesn't mean it's an official movie. It's right. Roland Emmerich told, wanted to tell this story. He should be able to tell the story however he wants, but other people will and can make, you know. And he did tell a story. It just wasn't. With Johnny Tremaine in the lead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, if you have thoughts about Stonewall, you can head to michellemeow.com and uh, hit the about button. There's a contact page for you to give us your thoughts. Um, just to wrap up really quick, I do want to acknowledge and give so many thanks for Terry Mutchler for joining us here on the program. Yeah. You know, John and I were just discussing over the break. We uh, we definitely are planning an event with Terry, so stay tuned and how that will all uh, fold, you know, or yeah, how we'll... We'll tell you the date and all that stuff at CommonwealthClub.org. And by the way, all of our podcasts exist there between John and I. Um, John, you you know you you study politics. You talk about politics. We always hear about this the scandalous um, type stuff that you know politicians are involved in. This story, if it yeah, if it came out in the '90s, would have been a huge. I don't know if scandal would be the right word. They you know I feel like they would have been fired from their positions and I, not talked about because they're women. Well, also, this was Illinois in the 1990s. Now, Chicagoland, very, very liberal. The downstate, not so much. So, it, you know, it's time and place. Well, we'll continue our discussion. And again, pick up the book, Under This Beautiful Dome, a senator, a journalist, and the politics of gay love in America. You can get it anywhere by Terry Mutchler. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, head to michellemeow.com. 